Section six of the Begum's Fortune by Jules Verne, translated by W. H. G. Kingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six The Albrecht Pit. Frau Bauer, Max Bruckmann's good landlady, was a Swiss by birth and widow of a miner who was killed four years previously in one of those accidents which make a miner's life so precarious. She was allowed a small annual pension of thirty dollars, and in addition the wages of her boy Carl brought regularly to her every Sunday. She was enabled slightly to increase her income by letting a furnished room. Although scarcely thirteen, Carl was employed in the coal mine as a trapper, it being his duty to open and shut one of the ventilator doors whenever it was necessary for the coal trucks to pass. His mother had her house on lease, and as it was too far from the Albrecht pit for him to come home every evening, he had obtained some night work at the bottom of the same mine. It was not heavy, being merely to look after six horses, whilst the man who had charge of them during the day spent the night above ground. Carl's young life was passed, therefore, almost entirely fifteen hundred feet below the surface of the earth. All day he kept watch by his door, all night he slept on a bed of straw near his horses. On Sunday mornings only did he return to the light of day, to revel for a few short hours in the universal blessing of the sun, the blue sky, and his mother's smile. As may be imagined, after such a week, on coming up from the pit he was hardly what would be called presentable. Indeed, he was more like a young gnome, a sweep, or a negro than anything else. Frau Bauer had always a large supply of hot water and soap ready, and devoted a good hour the first thing to scrubbing him. She next dressed him in a comfortable suit of dark green cloth, made from an old one of his father's, and kept all the week in a big deal cupboard, and then set to work to admire her boy, an occupation of which she never tired, for she thought him the handsomest in the world. When the layer of coal dust was washed off, Carl was really as good-looking as most boys. His golden silky locks, his pleasant blue eyes, well suited his fair complexion, but he was altogether too small for his age. His sunless life made him as white as a turnip, and had Dr. Saracen's Comte des Globules been applied to the blood of the young miner, it would probably have revealed that he possessed a very insufficient quantity. In character he was rather silent and quiet, with some of that pride which the feeling of constant danger, the habit of regular work, and the satisfaction of difficulties overcome gives to all miners. His greatest happiness was to sit near his mother at the square table in their little kitchen and arrange in a box a large number of frightful insects brought from the bowels of the earth. The warm and equal atmosphere of the mines has its special fauna, little known by naturalists, just as the damp walls of the pits have their flora of curious mosses, mushrooms, and lichens. The engineer, Molesmule, 
who was fond of entomology, had remarked this and had promised a small reward for each new specimen that Carl brought him. This, which at first led the boy to explore all the recesses of the mine, had gradually taught him to be a collector. He now sought for insects on his own account. However, he did not limit his affections to spiders and wood lice. He was on intimate terms with two bats and a big rat. If he was to be believed, these three animals were the most intelligent and amiable creatures in the world, even more intellectual than the horses with long silky manes and shining sides, of which Carl always spoke in terms of warm admiration. Blair Athel was chief favorite, the eldest in the stable, a philosophical old horse, who had been for six years fifteen hundred feet below the level of the sea, and had all that time never seen the light of day. He was now nearly blind, but how well he knew his way along the subterranean labyrinth, when to turn to the right or when to the left, as he drew his trucks without ever missing a step. He always stopped at the right time before the trap, leaving just enough room to open it. In what a friendly way did he neigh, morning and evening, at the exact minute when it was time for his provender to be brought him. How good, how obedient, how gentle he was. I declare, mother, he really gives me a kiss by rubbing his cheek against mine when I put my head near him, said Carl and he is wonderfully useful besides, mind you, for he is just like a clock. Without him we should never know whether it was night or day, morning or evening. So chattered the boy, and Dame Bower listened to him with delight. She, too, loved Blair Athel as much as her son did, and never failed to send him a lump of sugar. She would have given anything to go and see the old servant her husband had known, and at the same time visit the dismal place where poor Bower's body, black as ink, carbonized by the fire damp, had been found after the explosion. But women are not admitted into the mines, and she had to be satisfied with the vivid descriptions given by her son. Ah, she knew that mine well, that dark pit to which her husband went down and never returned. How many times she had waited near the yawning mouth, eighteen feet in diameter, looking along the walling of freestone, gazing at the oaken framework to which the corves were drawn up by cables and pulleys of steel, visited the outworks, the engine shed, the scorer's hut, and the rest— how many times had she warmed herself at the glowing brazier where the miners dry their garments on emerging from the pit, and the impatient smokers light their pipes? How familiar she was with all the noise and activity of the place. The receivers who unhooked the loaded corves, the sorters, washers, enginemen, stokers, she had watched them all at work, over and over again. What she could not see— and yet could always picture with the eyes of affection, was what happened when the basket sank down, carrying its cluster of workmen, with formerly her husband, and now her only child, among them. She could hear their voices and laughter, growing fainter and fainter in the depths, and finally ceasing altogether. 
in her thoughts she followed that frail basket as it was lowered down down the narrow chimney fifteen eighteen hundred feet fourteen times the height of the great pyramid till it arrived at the bottom and the men hastened off to their work she imagined them all dispersing to different parts of the subterranean town some to the right some to the left pickers armed with strong pickaxes to attack the blocks of coal shores to bank up places whence the coal had been hollowed carpenters to put up woodwork laborers to repair the roads and lay down rails masons to cement the roofs a wide central gallery led from this shaft to another a ventilator about a mile distant at right angles from this spread secondary roads and in parallel lines smaller ones again these roads were separated by walls and pillars of coal or rock all was regular square solid black and this labyrinth of roads was alive with half-naked miners working talking laughing by the light of their safety lamps all this dame bower could see as she sat alone dreaming beside her fire among the numerous galleries the one she oftenest imagined to herself was where her boy carl opened and shut his door when evening came the day workmen went up to be replaced by others but her boy did not go with the rest to take his place in the basket he went off to the stable patted his beloved blair athel and gave him his supper of oats and fresh hay then he ate his own little cold supper which had been sent to him played for a few minutes with his big pet rat caught and stroked the two bats as they fluttered about him and then was soon fast asleep on his heap of straw well did the fond mother know all this and much she loved to hear every incident of her boy's daily life mother what do you think mr malsmule the engineer said to me yesterday he said that if i gave correct answers to some questions in arithmetic which he would put to me one of these days he would take me to hold the land chain when he surveys the mine with his compass it seems they are going to pierce a new gallery to join the Weber shaft, and he will find it uncommonly difficult to bring it out in the right place. Really, cried Dame Bower with delight, did Mr. Mosmule say that? And already she imagined her Carl holding the chain along the gallery, whilst the engineer, notebook in hand, set down figures, and his eyes fixed on the compass, ordered the direction of the opening unluckily continued carl i have nobody to explain what i don't understand in my arithmetic and i'm much afraid i shall not answer correctly at this point max who was silently smoking by the fireside which place as a lodger in the house he had the privilege of occupying joined in the conversation and said to the boy, "'If you like to show me what you find difficult, perhaps I can give you a helping hand.' "'You?' said Dame Bower with some incredulity. "'Certainly,' replied Max. "'Do you think I learn nothing at the evening class to which I go regularly after supper? The master is very pleased with me, and says he will make me a monitor.' 
This settled, Max brought from his room a clean paper copy-book, and sitting himself by the lad, explained the difficult sum with so much clearness that the astonished Carl managed it easily. From that day Dame Bower showed more consideration for her lodger, and Max took a great liking to his little companion. In the factory Max showed himself an exemplary workman, and was not long in being promoted to the second and then to the first class. Every morning he was at the O-gate punctually at seven o'clock. Every evening, after his supper, he repaired to the class taught by the engineer, Chubner. Geometry, algebra, drawing of diagrams and machines, he attacked them all with equal ardor, and his progress was so rapid that his master was much struck by it. Two months from his entry into the Schultz manufactory, the young workman was already noted as one of the cleverest intellects, not only in the A section, but in all Stahlstadt. A report of his engineer, sent up at the end of the quarter, bore this formal mention. Schwartz, Johann, 26, working caster of the first class. I wish to bring this man before the notice of the directors as quite above the average, in three respects— theoretical knowledge, practical skill, and a remarkable genius for invention. But something more than this was required to draw the attention of the chiefs to Max. It was not long in coming, though unfortunately it was under the most tragical circumstances. One Sunday morning, Max, much astonished at hearing ten o'clock strike, without his young friend Carl having appeared, went down to ask Dame Bower if she knew any reason for this delay. He found her very uneasy. Carl ought to have been at home two hours and more. Seeing her anxiety, Max offered to go and look after him and set off in the direction of the Albrecht shaft. He met several miners on the way and inquired from them if they had seen the boy. Then, on receiving a negative reply, exchanging the Glukauf, success to you, safe return, which is the usual salutation of German pitmen, Max continued his walk. About eleven o'clock he reached the head of the Albrecht shaft. It was not noisy and animated, as on a weekday. There was only one young milliner, as the miners jokingly call the sorters of the coal, chatting with the watchman, whose duty kept him even on this day at the pit's mouth. "'Have you seen little Carl Bauer?' Number 41902, come up this morning? asked Max of this functionary. The man consulted his list and shook his head. Is there any other outlet to the mine? No, this is the only one. The new shaft to the north is not yet finished. Then is the boy below? He must be, though it's an odd thing, too, for on Sundays only the five watchmen should be left. Can I go down to find out? Not without permission. There may have been an accident, put in the milliner. Not possible on Sunday. All the same, said Max. I must find out what has become of that boy. You must speak to the overseer of machinery in his office if he is still there. The overseer, dressed in his Sunday best, with a shirt collar as stiff as if it had been made out of tin, was fortunately still at his accounts. 
he was an intelligent and humane man and at once entered into max's anxiety we will go immediately and see what he is doing and ordering the man on duty to be ready to pay away the cable he prepared to descend into the mine with the young workman have you not the galibert apparatus asked max it may be useful you are right one can never be sure what has occurred at the bottom of the pit saying this the overseer took from a cupboard two zinc reservoirs similar to the urns which the street cocoa sellers in paris carry on their backs these were boxes of compressed air placed in communication with the lips by means of two india-rubber tubes the horn mouthpiece being held between the teeth they are filled with the aid of peculiar bellows constructed to empty themselves completely the nose being held in wooden pinchers a man may thus supplied with a store of air penetrate into the most unbreathable atmosphere these preparations completed the overseer and max took their places in the basket the cable moved and the descent began two small electric lamps shed some degree of light around and the men conversed together as they were lowered into the depths of the earth for a man not in the business you are a cool hand remarked the overseer i've seen people who couldn't summon up courage enough to go down or if they did they crouched like rabbits at the bottom of the basket all the time really answered max it seems nothing to me though it's true i have been down a coal mine two or three times before they were soon landed at the foot of the shaft the watchman whom they found there had seen nothing of young Carl. They first visited the stable. The horses were there alone, and appeared quite tired of their own company. At least such was the conclusion to be drawn from the neigh with which Blair Athel greeted the approach of the three human figures. On a nail hung Carl's knapsack, and in a corner, beside a currycomb, lay his arithmetic book max remarked directly that his lantern was not there a fresh proof that the boy must still be in the mine he may have been hurt by a landslip said the overseer but it is scarcely probable what can he have been doing in the galleries on a sunday oh perhaps he went to hunt for some insects before going up said the watchman it is quite a passion with him the stable-boy, who arrived in the midst of this discussion, confirmed this supposition. He had seen Carl start at seven o'clock with his lantern. A regular search was immediately commenced. The other watchmen were called, and each one, with his lantern, told off in a different direction, pointed out to him on a large plan of the mine, that every tunnel and gallery might be thoroughly examined." In two hours the whole mine had been gone through, and the seven men met again at the foot of the shaft. There had not been the least appearance of a landslip found anywhere, nor the least trace of Carl. The overseer, perhaps influenced by an increasing appetite, inclined to the opinion that the boy had passed out unperceived and would by this time be at his home. But Max— convinced of the contrary, insisted on renewed exertions. "'What is that?' he asked, pointing to a dotted region on the plan, resembling in the midst of the adjacent minuteness 
those terra incognita marked on the confines of the Arctic continents. That is the zone provisionally deserted because of the thinning of the bed, replied the overseer. Is there a deserted zone? We must look there, exclaimed Max, with a decision to which the other men submitted. They were not long in reaching the entrance to some galleries, which, to judge by the slimy and moldy walls, might have been deserted for many years. They had proceeded for some time without coming upon anything suspicious, when Max stopped and said, "'Do you not feel stupefied and attacked with a headache?' "'Why, yes, indeed we do,' answered his companions. "'So do I,' resumed Max. "'For a moment I felt quite giddy. "'There is certainly carbonic acid gas about. "'Will you allow me to light a match?' he asked of the overseer. "'By all means, my lad, strike away.' Max took his little box from his pocket, struck a match, and stooping, held it towards the ground, upon which it instantly went out. I was sure of it, he remarked. The gas, being more heavy than the air, lies close to the ground. You must not stay here. I mean, those who have not the Galibert apparatus. If you like, sir, we can continue the search alone. This being agreed to, Max and the overseer each took between his teeth the mouthpiece of his air-box, placed the nippers on his nostrils, and boldly penetrated into a succession of old galleries. In a quarter of an hour they came out to renew the air in their reservoirs. This done, they started again. On the third trial their efforts were crowned with success. The faint bluish light of an electric lamp was seen far off in the darkness. They hastened to it. At the foot of the damp wall, motionless and already cold, lay poor little Carl. His blue lips and sunken eyes told what had happened. He had evidently wished to pick up something from the ground, had stooped, and been literally drowned in the carbonic acid gas. Every effort to recall him to life was in vain. He must have been already dead four or five hours. By the next evening, there was another little grave in the cemetery of Stolstadt, and poor Dame Bauer was bereaved of her child as well as of her husband. End of section six.